In May 2020, the world erupted after the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer, which was captured on film. Black Lives Matter protests raged across the US as well as on the global stage. For some, this brought conversations about race to the forefront in a way that they had never experienced before. For others, this was yet another byline in a very long and heartbreaking reality. Because as anyone who has real lived experience will tell you, racism and inequality do not only appear in their most extreme forms at points across history. It can be consistent, subtle, systemic and impossible to avoid. So two years on, we must ask ourselves, and I certainly have as a person of colour, has the world really changed? It was a privilege to sit down with Daniel Ash, president of the Field Foundation, to have a conversation around race. Daniel was previously in a very exciting role at the Chicago Community Trust. He has deep connections to the city of Chicago. Where are you, obviously, in in terms of state of mind on conversations on race? Well, in this moment, post or nearly post-pandemic, post-George Floyd and the U.S. context, um, in the midst of ongoing sort of movements around race, like Black Lives Matter, for me, I'm in two places simultaneously. One, I personally remain committed to helping communities interrogate the role that race has had sort of on this country, on our cities, on our towns, both at the system level and the personal level. So the the exploration is important. And I'm working very hard to be patient with others who, unlike me, have not interrogated these issues the way I, I have most of my career, most of my life. But as that unfolds, as we say, explore race and, and have challenging conversations about race, I'm also very committed to advancing the conversations toward the system and policy change that we need to remedy, quite frankly, the harm that racism, anti-Blackness has had on our country. Mm-hmm. Simply put, I'm very comfortable with Again, the, the personal exploration that so many of my friends and neighbors are in the midst of, and for again, for many for the first time. But as we do that, we have to be really, really intentional about asking the question, what do we do yeah. to address the harm that racism, anti-Blackness has had on our country? And again, that requires system policy discussions that should lead to the type of reforms we need. Can I take you back a bit, if you don't mind? You know, when did you first become aware of your race? Is there something from your childhood that you that you remember about how you made sense of human differences? I just want to take you back a bit to draw out a bit more from from your life and your lived experience, Daniel. Well, yeah, I'm comfortable going back. Um, I mean, Quite frankly, Addie, I do not remember a time in my life where race was not a conscious idea. As a Black man who grew up in a Black community, in a Black household, with a Black mother, a Black father, 
As a child, I was very aware of difference. And I was very aware of the type of sort of a code that we had to follow. I was actually raised by parents who were from the great generation, meaning that they they weren't baby boomers, they were older. And they experienced race like most Black people in this country in a very, very pronounced way. And for them, the issue of race, as Black people, we talked about, what do you need to do to be safe in, yeah. in this in this world? So I remember as a child, you know, being told as Black children, like, how we were supposed to behave, how we were supposed to dress, like, how we were supposed to carry ourselves to represent my parents and our household and our community in a certain way. As I aged, I became more aware of the why, like why my parents were so, so big on discipline, um, so big on showing up in a positive way, so committed to making sure we got the education that we deserved. Right. So again, I became aware of sort of like how their experiences led to the behavior that shaped me. Hmm. But again, as a child, it was always, we live in one community and other people live in other communities. And when we show up in those communities, there's a code that you should follow. And if you don't follow it, it could create trouble. Right. Wow. Wow. Daniel, there are two things that sort of emerge in my head as I, as I listen to you speak in response to that question around childhood. One is, I know you've got children, is it different for them, do you think, today than from your experience, you know, what you've described? And also, as years went on and life went on, how did race sort of show up later in life, you know, in your personal life, for example? I'm sure there's a separate piece around your professional life, which I want to draw out as well. But is it different? And how has it shown up over the years? Well, for my children, it's, 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 in many ways, things are different. Yeah. In many ways, things are very similar to the experience that I had and probably my, my parents and my siblings had as they grew up 60s, 70s and prior. My children are, are privileged to have a network of relationships that are much more diverse, racially diverse than the one I had or the relationships I had when I was coming up. So as a young person in Ohio, a small city named Youngstown, Ohio, Mm. I lived in a very, very segregated, racially segregated town. Mm -hmm. My network of friends and family was almost exclusively Black. My connections to whiteness or what is called whiteness, non-Black people, came through school. It came through experiences at the shopping mall. (laughs) Um, But personal, the intimate relationships um, across racial lines wasn't a norm for me. Mm -hmm. For my children, their networks are much more diverse. And they are more open and explicit about difference, diversity, inclusion. But that said, they still experience a lot of, I would argue, pain and and challenges as it relates to race. 
I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. One, my oldest child, who's now 24, Mm -hmm. when he was a a toddler and my wife and I would take him to the park, a park that was racially diverse, Mm -hmm. we had very, very clear experiences where when this black boy entered the sandbox, Mm -hmm. white parents would very tactfully move their children along to another apparatus at the park. My wife and I had those moments where we looked at at each other. Mm. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking when you have those those moments. But what you try to do is, you know, not create a scene that's going to have a negative impact for your, your son, right? But I believe that children are very observant. <laughs> I think children are are very aware of things around them. And while they may not consciously sort of have the capacity to name it, they experience sort of like that type of rejection, mm-hmm. even as children. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I use that very early child experience then to now sort of juxtapose that with experiences that they had later in life. Mm-hmm. Like my son's, my two oldest sons went to a, a all boy Catholic school mm-hmm. here in Chicago. They quite often talked about having to hear, you know, um, really, really challenging languages language from their white peers regarding race. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they confronted it. Sometimes they were too tired to confront and just heard it. But they they would talk about how you know, race was like ubiquitous and, and, you know, racial stereotypes, you know, language. And, and again, it was just part of their lives. But so at the same time, they're experiencing school life and they would actually say, well, yeah, they love their school and they love their experience. Right. They have friendships that are very, um, there's friendship network, relatively diverse, but there were still like these, this carryover, right? This, this sort of generational carryover of, of, of stereotypes, assumptions, characterizations around race that would just show up in their in their daily life. Now, again, the, the difference between them and me is that when I was in high school, I didn't experience the classroom experience with a white student. We maybe have had like one, two white students in the entire class that I was in in Youngstown. And so, so again, my experience was just so different. But at the same time, while I had very isolated experience, they had a more inclusive experience, some of the same sort of tensions and around race showed up nonetheless. Thank you for sharing that, Daniel. It's just, it feels like you said, you know, in some of the stories that you've just shared, some of it feels very similar to what you've told me about your personal life, you know, in terms of what what you've experienced. Some of it feels very different. I mean, how do you think it's showed up in your career? you know, over the years? So personally for me, race has always been ever present. You know, from my days in Youngstown, Ohio, race was just part of life. Like we knew we were a black family living in a segregated town. We were taught to be, to behave a certain way out of sheer protection of ourselves and safety. But I I would also say that race and the impact of sort of being black had an extremely positive impact on our household and that our, our parents wanted us to strive 
and be diligent when it came to education, when it came to sort of representing not only our household, but representing our community. As I've grown up and become a parent, my children have experienced race in different ways, but in, um, but in some ways very similar. While their social networks are much more inclusive, much mm-hmm. more racially diverse, um, and so their exposure to others um, of different sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds is much greater than in mine's when I was a young person, they still nonetheless experience challenges. Um, young people are, are having conversations about race, but they're not necessarily equipped or trained to have those conversations. And, um, and so they run into tensions, right? They run into um, the same type of sort of traps that adults run into when when the topic of race comes up. And so I, I would say that while race and sort of racial diversity is much more present in their lives, the challenges of sort of working through the impact that race has had on our society, not just historically, but in a contemporary way, is still a struggle. It's very much a struggle. One thing I do want to say that for me, I'm very privileged that I, as a professional, I spend so much of my life trying to help a particular community, in this case, Chicago, right. wrestle with this issue in a way that allows us to understand our history, understand yeah. the role that race or the construct of race has had on our society. But also, we do that because we want to create the conditions where we could remedy the harms that mm. racism, anti-Blackness had on our community. And if we can do that at the local level, my belief is that those localized conversations that lead to localized change create the upswell that we need to really drive change at Mm. the macro level, at the national level. No, absolutely. Daniel, I want to come back on this, on the power of conversations to do that, you know, what you've just said. I'll just, I'll come back to that. But before that, I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask you a question just for our listeners to get a sense of what is happening in America at the moment. So if you look back over the past two years, as the debates around race and inequalities have raged and continue to rage, what does it feel like to be a person of color in America at the moment? Well, that's a good question. It's, I tell you, sometimes it feels um, overwhelming to be a black man, uh, a person of color in this country. And, and I want to speak specifically to black people. I think black people who are, choose to remain conscious of these issues and choose to lean in on them carry a burden that sometimes we have to force ourselves not to carry to not only just sort of keep this work alive and keep the movement progressing, but sometimes we have to um, give ourselves permission to not take responsibility for others. And what I mean by that is to give you an example, like I've experienced a number of sort of racial healing practices, um, racial healing circuses, circles where you um, that are designed to sort of help people, individuals sort of interrogate the role that race 
has had for them or with them in their personal lives. Mm. And too often, like as black people are often out in front, you know, revealing and sharing very personal stories about how being black in this country has had both tremendous negative impact, but also hugely powerful, positive impact. But sharing your story is taxing, emotionally taxing. And sometimes we're, when, when, while the country is having a conversation about race, too often we're the ones actually that are, are putting ourselves out there being vulnerable. What we need, and I think this would make it, will lead to a much more productive yeah. conversation about race, is that for others, particularly other ethnicities, people who identify as white, if we're going to make progress, they have to have shared ownership and, yeah. and, and of sort of of these processes. Like they have to participate. Like we're not going to have uh, a progressive conversation about race that leads to meaningful change if the only people having the conversation are black people or people of color. And now there's a reason why there, there's so much discomfort with race. And again, I'm, this is not my expertise, um, but it, just based on my own experiences, you know, the issue of race forces people to interrogate our history, interrogate the sort of like how, you know, the, this country has been built on this idea of like a, a hierarchy of human value. Some people's sense of self is determined by how they other ethnic groups, like this idea of othering, like, you know, we are one way, everybody else is different. Therefore, we have greater value in society than they do. You know, those things that we are, are taught mm. consciously or subconsciously, we have to be willing to sort of unpack that. And again, um, for me, um, and I think, let me just speak for me. For me, carrying that torch is often physically and emotionally taxing because... It's hard work. And, and oftentimes we, in order for the work to move forward, we have to be out front. And I say that particularly because my professional life is so intertwined with these issues. The question I've often asked myself, Daniel, is what's going on here? You know, is there a power play or a power dynamic here that's, that's kind of at play? Why are people so afraid of someone with a different skin color? Do you think about that? Fear, as it relates to sort of race or racialized fear, is a product of exactly what racism is designed to do. I believe that racism and anti-Blackness is sort of rooted in this idea that some human beings have greater value than other human beings. And one sense of self, particularly if you're not Black, you're not a person of color, and you have sort of a white ethnic background, like your your value, your sense of human value is based on the devaluation of others. I think when you operate with that foundation, I believe that there's this sort of like natural emotional response to people who you see as sort of outside your group. You know, it's the proverbial sort of the us, them versus the we. Like when there's somebody that's always seen as other and then that other is considered less valuable, any type of interaction 
is if it's not controlled by the white to the ethnic individual or group, it's seen as a threat. And we have to control these groups. We have to, we, because we're greater than they are. So I think fear is rooted, I mean, it's a, it's a natural manifestation of racism, right? If there's this, if racism is based on, again, value, and then that value leading to power and authority over others, there's a natural fear that emerges when one senses the loss of that power. But it's all, you know, it's a false construct, right, to begin with. <laughs> but people have been socialized generation over generations that you know, their sense of self is based on the devaluation of someone else. And when they feel that they're losing value or losing the inherent power from such a heinous idea, it creates fear. So if this is what is happening out there, Daniel, and we are having these conversations around race, What's your perspective on the rate at which these conversations are progressing? Are we, are we seeing any kind of a shift? I do believe that we'll continue to see progress um, when it comes to undoing the impact of sort of racist systems and anti-Blackness on our society. I do believe like that progress is a function and will remain a function of deep personal conversations at the community level. I think those conversations have to be very inclusive. But conversations alone will not lead to the type of impact that we need. The conversations create the conditions for us to enroll people in the idea that we can undo racism, um, we can become anti-racist in our thinking, and then that thinking leads to us interrogating systems and policies that need to be reformed in order to, again, undo the harms of racism. I do believe that there's there's been a shift um, because of, quite frankly, the vast changes we're seeing on the global level, demographic shifts, uh, climate change, uh, the fact that we have a global economy, technology. I believe that there's such an acceleration sort of, of change that's just happening for us globally that this change is actually creating social anxiety. Right? So, and so the, the idea now is like, well, how do we deal with that anxiety? Because the anxiety could actually lead to us being more entrenched in the division that's created by racism and anti-Blackness that pervades the planet, or it could create the conditions where we create connections between people, right? So we, we, we move from a us-them modality to a sort of we framework that allows us to deal with these issues head on. So for me, it's like the change that we're experiencing as a global society actually is demanding that we deal with these issues. And again, not just have conversations, but have conversations that lead to pragmatic, meaningful change. So what you're saying is clearly we need change, but then what change do we need? Particularly, what are you seeing in, from your context? You know, how does the world look to you from your perspective? The change that we need from a domestic United States context is directly 
um, associated with public policy. And so for me, the change is practical. I'll give you a couple of examples. Racism has led to the sort of underinvestment or disinvestment in communities of color, particularly Black communities. We need to create sort of policy remedies that reverse that trend. Racism, historical racism, which has led to segregation in this country, has created an enormous sort of wealth gap between the Black community and the sort of ethnic white community. We have to uh, sort of interrogate sort of that gap and sort of like what, what, what are the levers that are sort of driving the growth of that gap? And we have to enact public policy that closes that gap. So, for example, we need to create conditions where Black workers are earning the wages that they deserve in the labor market. We have to deal with issues like pay equity, both at the blue-collar, white-collar level. We have to make sure that, you know, Black people and others who have been locked out have access to the well-paying jobs that create the conditions for them to purchase their home, save, and accumulate wealth that then could be passed on. Um, What we do know um, is that we've had systems in place for generations that prevented this type of wealth accumulation. And not only that, um, the systems created an extraction of wealth from these communities. If we can address that issue, you know, we can start undoing some of the harm that sort of racist practices resulted in. We also have to look at education. Like how has anti-Blackness, sort of systemic racism, impacted the public education system in this country? We need to interrogate that and make sure that we adequately finance the education of Black children and Latino, Latinx children sort of in this country and other other minority groups that have been sort of marginalized because we know that the, the amount of money that's spent on their education pales in comparison to um, their white peers. Moving from conversations about race to uh, actions that actually undo racism, they can be done. The conversations have to actually not just explore the history of racism, but they have to explore the consequences that racism has had. And once we explore those consequences, we have to condition people to then understand why there's such a desperate need for these policy reforms. And the the last point I want to make here, when we look at policy, we have to, and we look at the policy reforms that would, quite frankly, undo the harm of racist systems. We have to understand and be really clear about the universal benefit that such policies will have. And so too often, when it comes to the policy discussion around race, people think like, well, we're going to support public policy that benefits the few. There's significant amount of research that suggests clearly that policy reforms that would provide, again, more equitable distribution of resources in our society will have a positive impact for society, not just Black people, not just 
Latinos, not just other ethnic groups that have been marginalized, but everyone. It's important for us to make clear that conversations about race will lead to policy reforms that benefit everyone. Too often, the assumption is policies that are designed to undo racial harm will only benefit the groups that have been harmed. Good public policy that addresses the issue of equity head-on benefits everyone in society. So this is making me think, Daniel, what would it look like, feel like, if things were good, you know, living in an accessible, safe, non-racist culture, world, what would it look like? What would society feel like? I believe that society would look like we want it to look. Like we want society to be about the collective, we. we. I think we would see less division. I think we would see more organizing around important ideas. Right now, I feel that like, the issue of race and the, the history of racism creates these divisions that get exploited in the political realm. And I think if we sort of deal head on with racism and we work as a society undo racism and we start creating bridging opportunities across communities, I think we create the conditions for more collective conversations, right? Because those, those collectives are going to be a function of strong bridges between communities at the local level. So, and I think the net result will be universal policies that benefit, equitably benefit members of a community. There will never be, in my opinion, because of human beings, like a human utopia, absent any type of stress or challenge. What we will see, though, I think is sort of bonds of trust that exist across communities that have been historically divided by race and ethnicity. And I think if we see bonds of trust and affection across sort of communities, we create a different type of public square. And I think in that public square, we're able to wrestle with the actual issues that need to be dealt with and not deal with the, quite frankly, the issues that have been lifted up to divide us. So as we come to this to the end of this this conversation Daniel you know what I'm what what I'm thinking is what feelings what thoughts what reflections are you holding at the moment I know what I'm feeling having had this conversation with you and and also looking two years on you know from where we started this conversation what does it feel like to be in the black community in America right now in this moment post pandemic post George Floyd in this moment of Black Lives Matter and a a sort of movement to interrogate the role that racism and anti-Blackness has had on our society, I personally feel this is an opportunity to sort of undergird the type of infrastructure we need to sustain the movement for racial equity, social justice. What I mean by that is that we're not going to solve things that have taken hundreds of years to create. We're not going to solve them in one year or two years or three years. The movement toward social justice, racial equity, 
is a long-term movement that dates back to the abolitionists and beyond. This moment we have that we're in, we have the opportunity to strengthen our capacity to sustain the work toward racial justice, racial equity. We do that by doing two things. One, continuing to have the personal conversations that individuals need to have about the role race has had on their lives. And what I mean by that is that everyone needs to participate in those conversations. Those conversations, the interpersonal work, personal work, must lead to policy discussions. Um, and again, the infrastructure that we need to create so supports that. And that's where that dovetail to my professional work. You know, our job is to create sustainable organizations that are going to remain committed to this work and have the capacity to do the work across all communities. And if we have that in place, you know, in our churches, in our nonprofits, in our government institutions, in our corporations, in our private clubs, you name it, if we have like infrastructure where people are interrogating the issue of race and they're creating opportunities for folks to grow personally and collectively, we'll be able to create the conditions for positive policy reform. The other point I want to make in closing is this. This work cannot be sustained absent bonds of trust and affection permeating every aspect of social life, particularly at the local level. We need to create conditions for groups that have been segregated and segmented and pitted against one another. We have to create conditions where those individuals are able to have personal connections with folks that have been deemed as different, as other than them. So if we can create the conditions for belonging, inclusiveness, and then those, and, and, and we can move from a, a mindset of us versus them and have more conversations about that are grounded in we, the collective. If we do that, we create the conditions for this movement to truly take root and lead to progress. And my belief is that the fundamentals, the relationships at the community level, the local level, are strong enough to drive that change. What an incredibly thoughtful conversation there with Daniel. You know, race is often extremely difficult for us to talk about. In fact, so many of us fear that we will fail when it comes to having this dialogue with others. But just like Daniel, as a person of color, I can also really attest to that sense of fatigue that sometimes comes from having these conversations and needing to drive them forward. It can be quite physically and emotionally exhausting. And I recognize that when Daniel said the same thing. But then again, as he reflected, in order to see change, we must double our efforts to have these conversations. All of us have to do that. 
no matter where we sit across the globe. A very special thank you to Daniel Ash for talking to me today and thank you to all of you our listeners out there for joining us. If you did enjoy this episode, please feel free to rate it and leave us a review and tell us about a purpose-driven conversation you would like us to have. We look forward to seeing you again very soon.